This podcast is sponsored by Meridian. For custom integrators, it's all about the performance. We get that at Meridian. That's why we craft high-res audio solutions, purpose-built for integrators, that put the listener right at the heart of the performance. High-res audio, engineered for you, built by Meridian. It's the future of sound. Hello and welcome to The Integrated Home, a podcast produced by the home integration community for the home integration community. My name is Jeff Hayward and with my industry guest today we'll be looking at the question of recurring monthly revenues. Is service important for your business? How can you offer aftercare and why should you? What will change for your business if you do offer an ongoing service package for your customer and what are the pitfalls to avoid? We'll also be looking at some of the challenges of working on projects overseas. What steps should you take to deliver on those projects? And how can you make a success of this kind of work for you and your customer? Welcome to The Integrated Home. We are podcasting from the London showroom of one of the industry's longest established home integration businesses, Graham's Hi-Fi, and joined here by two of the industry's most experienced practitioners, David Graham of Graham's Hi-Fi and Steve Moore of SMC. Welcome to you both. Hi. Hi. Now, David, I can't believe there's anyone listening out there who doesn't know you or Graham's, but imagine that there might be. Please just give us a few words to describe you and the Graham's Hi-Fi business. Okay, well, Graham's actually started in 1929 by my great-uncle, about uh, a couple of years just before the internet started and uh, 15 years before electricity came along. (laughs) And we started as an electrical retailer in Clerkenwell, um, just near Mount Pleasant Post Office. And in the 60s, when Hi-Fi really started, that's what we concentrated our business on, and we became very well known as one of the first uh, retailers to have demonstration facilities, Um, And in the early 70s, we started working with some of our key partners of today, Meridian, Lynn, Name, Arcam, to name a few, who we've been dealing with since then, and they're still brands that are well well established. What we did realise in the mid-80s was that we realised that if we ask customers where they want to listen to their music, their first question was, what do you mean? Because the norm in those days was people bought a, a house, they bought a car, they bought a stereo. And the stereo would sit in in the lounge, and that was the the main place they listened to music. And we realised that by asking them this question, they they thought about it for a moment and said, "Well, in fact, you know, I spent a lot of time in the kitchen and in my bedroom and the bathroom, and and all of a sudden, we found we were selling not one hi-fi system, but four or five or six hi-fi systems to those same customers." I guess the key part is, which brings us here today was back in the mid-90s. This fellow sitting next to me, called Steve Moore, said to me, "I've been to this place called Cedia, in the States." Um, how about we set up a chapter here in the UK? And we had a meeting at Harman. Does your memory go back that far, Steve? Yeah, we had a meeting yeah. before that, but yeah. Uh, so we, had a, we got together, well, see, I probably had a meeting with a few others, but we then had a meeting at Harman's head offices in Boreham Wood where about 30 uh, industry uh, players who were mainly in those days typical hi-fi retailers, AV installers, most of them, um, got together and uh, Steve did a presentation um, and we talked about... Uh, setting up a chapter of Cedia in the UK. And uh, Steve became the first chairman. Two years later, I followed. It wasn't that hard an act to follow, of course, but um, uh, <laughs> that brings us you know, here, here today. Here we are today. Yeah. And so, Steve, you were in at the start from, from Cedia. Afraid so, yeah. I think I went to Cedia first in the States in 92 or 93. Um, SMC started in 93, 25 years ago. I'd 
uh, studied architecture at university. Whilst I was doing that, I set up a business called the Cornflake Shop, which is still trading called Cornflake. Now I left that in 93. And since that time, I won't, I won't give you the full uh, exegesis back to the Middle Ages like David, but uh, <laughs> since that time, we've grown a little bit. There's 60 odd people there. Now we've got a number of staff that have been with us pretty much the whole time. We've got a few people who have been there for more than 20 years, quite a lot of people who have been there for more than 10 years, and the scope of what we offer has increased. So as well as doing audio, video, we obviously do everything's a computer in disguise. We do a lot of IT, uh, we do security, we do lighting, lighting design, uh, and so on. And so, you know, our business has changed as the industry has evolved. Good stuff, good stuff. Well, David, look, I understand that you've recently returned from the Caribbean, um, but it's not all been Bacardi breezes and bikinis, has it? No, I found it actually quite hard working in a bikini out there. It was 30 <laughs> degrees, but it was still pretty challenging. Um, in fact, I told my staff that this morning and the, they've got this horrible picture in their mind of, of that. I've got it too. Yeah. Thank you. Can we um, move on? No, in, in all seriousness, uh, I mean, working abroad has its challenges. It's the first job we've done uh, over in that part of the world. Working in 110 volts is, is interesting because uh, you get less of a shock generally when you touch the wires. Those type of jobs abroad are... We never planned to go there to the Caribbean and do that job. We did the design work for the client. It's an English, English homeowner who we've known for many years, done a number of his homes here. He's retired out there or moved out there um, and asked us to help design and plan the systems there with the intention that they'd have somebody locally do the installation. Well, they managed to just about cut out a speaker hole the right size and put some of the speakers in the right place and run some of the cables the right places, but control systems and um, motorised TV mechanisms that bring TVs out of walls and out of ceilings and uh, we're doing quite a unique bespoke uh, outdoor projection system for them um, which we've had that the mechanism designed and made to do that there's no chance in a million years that the locals are going to be able to do that so that's how we ended up over there okay I mean that 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 obviously that reliance on the local workforce so I guess that's something that you always have to do in projects overseas I mean you must face the same sort of challenges Steve don't you for SMC yeah I think so I think uh, what's interesting, actually, is that what you learn from overseas projects, I think this week we've got a team in St. Petersburg, we've got people in France, people in Spain, uh, is equally valid for jobs here. You know, it's all about planning and preparation and good communication. I think that the most common issue is that different trades tend to ring-fence their activities on projects overseas. Not always, but depending on, where you, depending on where you look. And there's less effective overall project management, we find. It depends where you, where you go. Less effective overall project management. So the coordination has to be done ahead of time. The detailing needs to be agreed. And you need complete clarity about what you're going to do, when you're going to do it, and what needs to be in place before you start. And I guess that a lot of your clients have second homes overseas. I mean, overseas can be Jersey or Guernsey or, or the Isle of Man, I guess. Yeah, I'm sure all of us who work with clients with high net worth uh, individuals, they've all got more than one home. And usually the work... we None of us, I don't think, actively look to go and work in these countries abroad. It's usually you're looking after their home, you know, you've done your second, third home here, they've bought a place in the sunshine, in the, in the Alps... Uh, a lot of work we do in, in Europe is mainly those English clients who've got second places. Mm-hmm. And the challenges of that are, um, you know, we do them partly because they're interesting to do, they're good for your portfolio. The logistics, as Steve was saying, of, of how you have to plan those jobs, it does help us do better jobs here. 
because you, you, you don't have the luxury of, of having access to materials and, and, you know, we'll come back tomorrow with somebody else. Can you send over a widget that we need for this thing? You've really got to design those systems well and plan them properly. Um, and that takes a huge amount of time and the consequence of cost of that is also um, challenging. And you probably learn a lot about local laws as well and uh, no, we working ignore, practices. No, we, we ignore laws. I mean, my first, my, my first time to the Bahamas, I arrived there and the woman said to me, I was only going there to, do a, to have a visit at the place to see how, how they'd got on there. And I arrived at the passport control and the woman and they said, looked at my passport she says, so what are you doing here? I said, well, I'd come for business. So you're working here? I said, well, not really. I said, I've just come to have a meeting with a client and, well, that's work. I said, well, yeah, I'm not. So my idea of work was, you know, get some tools out and do some programming and, and, and what have you. It was a, and we have this whole discussion that goes on and on and on. And eventually, she says to the client, I get the client on the phone. He says, just tell her you're on holiday. Just tell her you're visiting friends on holiday. So it's too late for that. So <laughs> eventually, half an hour later, I get taken in the back office and I explain the same story to a supervisor there. And eventually, she says to me, you'll need a work permit. I'm thinking, oh dear, I'm only here for three days just to have a look at the place and and some sunshine at the time. And uh, eventually she says, so I said, so I've got to pay for a work permit. And so she looks at me, she goes, gets a rubber stamp, she goes, dunk, dunk, there you are. I said, well, that was it? That was it. Anyway, nice. when we went back just now, I said to the client, get me a work permit, you know, it's not worth messing around. So you have to watch those things. Europe, of course, is easy, mm-hmm. apart from Switzerland. Russia, it should be challenging, I should imagine. Do you um, a, there's a lot of people with comedy hats and badass badges that you need to pay attention to you need quite a lot of paperwork yeah. in fact once in moscow with our design manager we ended up going to a meeting that we hadn't planned for because in sitting in the car of one client his driver received a call from the representative of another client uh, saying that we should instead go to that meeting and we were exchanged from mercedes a to mercedes b at the side of a motorway <laughs> in a rather more exciting way than one had planned for uh, so sometimes things sometimes things happen. Sometimes things happen. Any advice for installers who might be approaching a first project overseas? I think m- much of what we do is about documentation, and it's about the manage management of people's expectations. And so if you make sure you doubly clearly describe exactly what you're going to do, make sure that's in the correct language, you respect the jobs of other people, you understand the interfaces. It's pretty much what we do all the time. But do it before your meeting. Make sure everybody knows what you're going to be talking about in that meeting and make sure you're armed with the information that they'll need from you. I don't, I don't think there is anything a huge, there, is a, there is a huge assumption here that you do all this documentation and they actually read it and follow any of it. So going back to the Caribbean, you know, we'd spent two years designing this system. We did a huge amount of detail. And uh, you go and you say, well, they've run these cables from point A to point B. And I said, why have you run into point C? Oh, it was easier, man. <laughs> so, but, but the bit that's feeding it is, is over the other side of the house. Oh, don't worry, we'll sort that out and, you know, let's run some more wires. So that's the thing that frustrates me the most. And had that job been in the UK or closer to home, we would have visited that job way more than we did and we were quite reliant on the client who's project managing his own building project, which, you know, little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Um, and uh, But language, you know, speaking English is easy. Go and work in France or Italy. I don't speak Russian particularly well, uh, but my technical Italian and Spanish is pretty good now. Um, and, of course, the dynamics of understanding, you know, we are the foreigners going to work in their territory. There's a lot of psychology you've got to deal with there in terms of not just storming in and, uh, and, and seeing how people behave like that. I know when we're on site on jobs in London, 
and we see people come from abroad, you know, our engineers get... Yeah, market, I, do, I, you know? I, do, I do think that's a good point. I mean, you're saying you're often working for clients for whom you've worked here, as we are overseas, but we're seeing an increasing amount of jobs for overseas clients specified in London. There's a fantastic community of designers, architects, other specifiers in London. And so it may well be that we're doing the first home of a client that we've not met before with a team with a team from England or a team from Paris or a team with whom we've worked before. And yeah, it's important not to appear arrogant, to be collaborative and make sure that you're helping the other trades on site, some of whom are learning, some of whom are bitter that they haven't got the package that you're delivering. Uh, and somewhere, you know, through the early stage of the project, you need to get everybody on side. And our experience certainly as part of that design team is that I've never, ever sat in a meeting and not come up with a better solution to a problem than everybody working together. You know, good interior designer, good architect, good us, good project manager, good client, everybody sitting around the table working together rather than against each other. And and that's, you've got to break those barriers down in the first place. And, you know, be quite assertive as well about who, who's doing what. So, I mean, one of the things I'm sure SMC do, uh, and we've done for years, is making it quite clear. We have clear documentation that says this is who we are, this is our relationship with the client, with the contractor, with whatever. We're going to ask you to do X, Y and Z in this project. We're going to do these bits. Here's how the phase of that project might work. Um, we'll do some design. We'll supply some cables. We won't supply some cables. You'll source them locally. We'll ship them, whatever that may be. Um, we'll get you to run those. We'll come and check them. We'll first fix your, your first fix. We'll, we'll, we'll fit the bits on the end. We'll prove that bit works. That's where your responsibility ends and all that sort of stuff. It's worth having that sort of documentation, whether it's abroad or here, so there's no ambiguity about who's going to do what. You know, I thought you were doing this. We always get this on lighting systems. You know, we've, we've got an electrician on, electrical contractor on site and they need to sign off and do all the 230-volt work. And they go, oh, we thought they thought we were wiring up the, the main neutron panel, you know, the main lighting panel. Um, you could, even if you document, it doesn't mean say anybody's going to read it, but at least you can refer back to it and say, no, no, you need to do that bit. And, so and make sure bit. you're being clear, be well prepared. Yeah, well and, that's, and that's just good practice, whether it doesn't matter where the job is, you need to do those sort of things. So I'm sure most systems integrators are really realise they have to do that type of documentation as much as, you know... It's just about helping out as part of a team. Everyone's trying to deliver the same promise together for, for the client. And uh, if we're able to help other people, we'll do that. We end up producing one-to-one drawings in some cases that explain exactly what's happening, where it's happening, which cables go where, this is where our rack or our lighting control panel is going, so that somebody else can't bagsy that space. And when we're on site, we'll put that on the wall and we'll help them with their work around our space so that everybody gets their promise delivered. I'll tell you a real classic one of that that we come across more and more now. We're doing, like SMC, we're doing a lot more uh, lighting design and lighting supply. And as we're then in charge of the whole thing from start to finish, you know, from the push button to what comes out the, the light source at the end of the day, um, I see when we work with lighting designers, they often um, specify, do, do a good design, but then the technical bits of that what drivers do you need to power these things? They'll say, leave it to the manufacturer of the light fittings to specify that, and then leave it to the electrical contractor to decide where they're going to bung them. And then two years later, when the lights doesn't work, nobody knows where anything is. Um, so in the same way as bagsying space, you know, we, we spend a lot of time detailing how much space is needed, where these drivers are going to go. And when I talk to other people about this, they go, why are you doing that? I said, because we're the one that's going to get the blame when that light doesn't work and I want to be able to know that it's been engineered properly and designed properly and we've got the right amount of space and these drivers are not just thrown in. Uh, and the least, the, the least good person to specify that is, is, is the electrical contractor. 
Um, I'm not saying some of them aren't capable, but uh, you know they're just a couple of guys on site trying to wire some stuff up, and, uh, and that's a it's to, selfish to, too. We'll, yeah. we'll be the people relying on that documentation in years to come. Which brings us on to aftercare service, yeah. which we're going to talk about in a moment. Now we're going to find out what makes Steve Moore tick in a quick-fire 30 seconds of questions. David is the quizmaster. David, are you ready? I'm ready to go. Ready, steady, go. OK, Steve, apart from me, obviously, who's your inspiration in the industry? Kevin Andrews. What was the first gig you ever went to? Joan Armour Trading. What's the most important quality you need to be a successful installer? You need to be cheerful and innovative. How would you describe your taste in clothes? And I use the word taste loosely. Consistent. Who's the movie director you admire the most? Kura Ida. If you've not watched Nobody Knows or Afterlife, watch those films. We'll do that. Which yet-to-be-invented technology would change your life for the better? Teleporting. I'm not particularly enjoying Southern Rail at the moment. <laughs> uh, Home Alone or Elf? Home Alone. Birdhouse in your soul or don't let start? Birdhouse in your soul. What's the maddest thing you've ever been asked to do in a client's home? At the moment, we're moving a whole wall instead of the TV within it. Well, Mr Moore, you have scored four out of ten. <laughs> Better than normal. Thank you, David. In your specialist subject. <laughs> Very good. Now, moving on. Recurring monthly revenue, or RMR as it's referred to in shorthand, is frequently touted as a holy grail for home technology businesses, helping to build stronger customer relationships and improve cash flow. But how easy is it to change from design and installation to a design, installation and service business? Steve, SMC is established in this area. Can you outline how you run this part of the business and how it's changed the way you work? Well, we've always done uh, maintenance and aftercare for security. That's the law. So we're what's called an NSI approved, what used to be called an ACOS approved, intruder alarm designer and installer. We do that for CCTV and other systems as well, which means you need to be able to monitor and respond to service incidents. So we have a separate team dealing with aftercare. We now put seven-figure revenue through that team every year and we've recently launched an app that enables customers to call for service when they need to. There's a dashboard for building managers, estate managers and so on that plugs into our back-end systems for invoicing, for comms, for uh, the production of as-built drawings, user guides and so on. So it's quite a slick process now and actually the main difference for us was treating it as a core part of the business as opposed to something that we had to do but didn't really want to. Uh, it used to be about selling stuff. People could come in on a Saturday, take four or five boxes home or we'd install four or five boxes and that was pretty much it. And now everything, whether it's your TV program, your music, uh, your service interactions are delivered as a service. So your IT equipment comes with a licence just as your control system does, just as your service equipment uh, your security equipment does. So it's an integral part of SMC and how you operate these days? Yeah, it's a core part of what we do. People aren't buying some stuff to use for the first weekend or the first year. They're buying something to help their life uh, be more fun, more enjoyable, more reliable, more secure for many years to come. Uh, the important thing is we get regular engagement with a customer and that enables us in sort of big business speak to reduce churn. We retain more customers and it's a great acquisition tool for customers because lots of businesses don't offer that. Lots of people sell stuff. Not everybody offers a holistic service package. How does that compare to you, David? Well, we've certainly seen, the, and I'm sure the same with many systems integrators over the last five or ten years, that um, 
the um, our business is becoming clearly more service orientated. Always has always has been, but it's becoming more obvious that that's the case. Um, you've only got to look at the value of the products that we're installing and make work, and the hardware is a tiny, insignificant part of that. Certainly, I agree with Steve completely. Engaging with your customers on a regular basis helps retain them. It helps. Uh, it's dead easy to keep people upgrading and keeping on top of their systems, um, especially when they've made a huge investment in, uh, in 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 the cost of what they've done in their homes. You wouldn't buy a £200,000 car and expect nobody to look after it forever and ever. And that's uh, sadly the attitude that, 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 that exists out there. Uh, in terms of how we do it, we, we, we're a much smaller business than SMC. Um, we have clients who we are on a, re- on a regular uh, maintenance program with, and that usually we work that out depending on the client's requirements. So after we've done the first year of their system, we get a good feel for how much hand-holding they need. You know, some of our clients want to phone us up and say, come and change the batteries in my remote because I can't be bothered. Um, no, they do. You know, the, the remote's not working. Have you put batteries in it? No. We'll just send somebody around to do that. Well, if they want us to do that four times a year, then we factor that in. Uh, that's extreme, but but you know you know what your clients are the ones that require certain hand holding, um, and uh, our our maintenance programs are tailored, and there's no one standard formula for that. Um, but the backbone for all of this stuff now uh, is of course the IP networks, uh, and that is the key to you know these are the veins and, and, and the blood flowing flowing through our systems, and um, we have to keep a track of those things. So that's a key part to our support. I think there's a couple of interesting points that David's raised. One of them, just briefly, you know, talking about Apple TV or Sonos or something like that, not, not to be curmudgeonly about it, cheaper solutions these days are better, more effective solutions than the old school, heavy lifting, more expensive solutions that were available. We used to run cables as thick as your arm around people's ha- homes to get music to work in different places. Now I can do that very effectively with a wireless solution, which is great if it works, but keeping it working or subscribing to the music service, or subscribing to a better quality music service is important. You you gave the example of the uh, car purchase, and I know motoring analogies are a little bit tired, (laughs) but, you know, one's car used to cost 40 grand, and now it costs 400 quid a month, and you get tyres and insurance and servicing and a new one every two years. And that total cost of ownership model is something that customers are beginning to understand. It's certainly common, uh, the leasing uh, model is common in commercial environments, and we're seeing more and more of that sort of thinking. And what people are paying for is a continuity of whatever they want, the Premier League, or uh, we're talking about Idols earlier, or Janelle Monet, or whatever it is that they listen to. They want to continue to listen to that in the kitchen and the bedroom and the tube through their life. And part of our job is to make sure that that persists, make sure that that keeps working. And that's quite hard. It's, a, it's not a hard sell. It's a different sell to, to what most people in our industry are used to, to doing. So trying to, to explain that to clients. They're not stupid. They understand it. But nobody, you know, people still see what we do as some hardware, some engineering, some value-added proposition that we do to that. So do you have that conversation at the outset? Oh, I think you have to. You, you have to include... Um, you know, as part of your sales presentation, the aftercare package and 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 what the implications of that are for sure. Um, we don't go. You know, I'll be honest with you. We don't go into it as much detail. And having discussed this with Steve uh, today, um, just thinking about the monthly revenues of 
Um, you know, those business models, recurring revenues are, are clearly there for all the service providers, whether it's Sky, Spotify, Tidal, these are any of the music streaming services, Apple, Amazon, they're all at the same thing. And that's where their business models are generating those in- incomes. And that's no different to what we're trying to do, um, albeit in a, slightly different, uh, in a slightly different way. And that also is what differentiates our proposals maybe from some of our competitors. Because if I was buying something for, doesn't matter what the amount is, 150, 200,000 pounds, I'd like to know that I'm going to be looked after ongoing. I think it is a good differentiator and it's a promise that customers remember. We had a situation a few years ago with a customer, in fact, not yet a customer of ours, but someone with whom we'd started a design discussion with his architect, looked at the site for his new home and I got a call from him in the car with four kids on a Saturday uh, when he was screaming out of the car phone uh, saying he was attempting to watch the football. This is in a house, uh, by the way, that we'd had no involvement in, uh, attempting to watch the football, and his sky uh, had gone down. No shirt, everyone. That's clearly the least reliable thing that we sell. Uh, uh, although in this case, we hadn't sold we it. We give it away, yeah. uh, And it, so he's, he's shouting at me, saying, I've already missed one goal. And we had the balance of 90 minutes to fix a problem that we hadn't uh, been the architect of. Uh, but we managed to do that. Uh, and we got someone around, we got him back online. And Did they draw? I have no idea. Uh, no idea. But people, there's an inverse proportionality between wealth and patience. And if you make a service promise, people are grateful for it. It's the thing that they're most commonly let down on. And if you do it well, it's a key differentiator. And if you do it well, it's really sticky. And we've won enormous installation jobs. You know, we've recently uh, started probably more than £2 million worth of work for a family for whom we initially had some service interactions because their very nice installer, who was very good when he answered the phone, didn't answer the phone one weekend. Um, we managed to answer the phone and resolve a problem. And that catalyzed some pay-as-you-go aftercare work and a huge amount of installation work following. Yeah, And we, we see that, uh, not that regularly, but um, the, the stories I hear um, about... You know, the average in, uh, the average systems integrator doing some quite high value projects might be a two or three man band getting them to go along to finish off their job or just deal with an issue that's come up after a new installation let alone ongoing after sales is a big challenge so you know a lot of a lot of integrators you know start the job get through that next one and and just move on to the next one and forget about the stuff they've done in the past mm-hmm. and it's a huge opportunity that's that's but it's a resource with. issue isn't it of course it is but then you have to you know if you're a three man band going to that extra resource is quite a challenge uh, but it's a question of how you run your how you're going to run your business and uh, where you're how you see developing that uh, that that level of service i think it's it's not necessarily about resource it's about being prepared to meet your promise about the mouth trouser ratio, doing what you say you're going to do. And no, but we, do any we, of them say they're going to do it? That's the question. Well, I, I, think, question. I think, that's, I think that's, the, that's the key. So if you're a smaller company, you can be very explicit about what you do and what you don't do. One of the hurdles for customers um, is a, a, an understanding of what they can't get because they didn't take out the maintenance contract. They cannot expect whatever it is that you would otherwise have done for them, response after hours or something like that. So you might say you'll respond during working hours during the week or you'll respond on weekdays. But if, you know, we offer a 24-7 service for AV, IT, security, if that's what we say, we've got to do that and we write proper SLAs and we meet those SLAs. And if we don't, we put our hands up and uh, provide a refund or uh, come up with some other compensation for the customer. 
Do you think there's an opportunity for installers who may not be scaled up to deliver aftercare to collaborate or partner with a, a service division of another company? Ooh, that's challenging uh, because let alone, you know, unless you know the, the partner that you're working with very well, the documentation, the support is really hard. But just talking about after hours, I mean, our clients are, when are they using their systems? Out of hours. Hardly any of my clients are sitting at home on a Wednesday afternoon watching television that they need a service call. It's the weekends, it's the evenings and that sort of type of thing. Now, we don't offer a 24-7 um, support package. We don't have any clients that we form formally do that for. And I should imagine uh, part of that is down because we don't do alarm systems. Um, so we don't have a requirement per se. But in practice, our clients are regularly in touch with us over the weekend, out of hours, because that's the time they have an issue. And in most cases, we probably respond to that fairly quickly and get, they get a good response from us, but it's not formalised as, well as, as well as it could be. You know, certain systems are mission critical. You know, their lights don't work, that's mission critical. If the Apple TV in the guest bedroom's playing up, can that wait till Monday morning for somebody to have a look at? Yes. Is it something we could deal with over the weekend? The chances are we probably do. And the reality is, is that many of the systems integrators who are not charging for these services give some level it anyway. Yeah? So they're not being paid to do it, and they're doing it because that's just what they've always done. And by formalising that, there's an opportunity to, A, make it clearer to the customer that level of service is available, and B, to actually get, earn some money from it. So just to give a slightly different answer, but initially picking up on one of your points, David, if you haven't sold, if as a dealer you haven't sold a, an aftercare package for a customer and they do keep shouting and you do keep jumping, a, a, a useful tactic is to send them an invoice... No for the value, exactly, for the value of the time that you spent, four hours, call-out charge, et cetera, et cetera, then credit that total amount to deliver a £0 invoice so that they can at least understand what they might expect to pay next time, given that they hadn't signed up for that. And it's just a, a gentle way we've of... Reg we've regularly done that. It's, uh, a good, it's a good opportunity. Well, somewhere down the line, you've got to make yeah. some money, David. But, <laughs> but, uh, but it's a, it's a good, good thing to do to start with. But most of what customers get addicted to is the empathetic response technology can allow you you've seen this through personalization of apps and accounts whether it's your iPlayer or your uber uh, the initial challenge is one of recognition and i think there's a range of tools to help dealers recognize customers now and on the subject of remote access and remote maintenance providing proactive communication to the customer is doubly valuable. Being able to say, we noticed there was a problem with the internet in your street last night, we've checked this, it's now back to normal, we've reset it, or picking up an issue before it becomes a major problem is really valuable. So what does it say about your business, having a, a good service model? Well, it shows the client that you're serious about what you do and that you're professional about what you do. And I think that's, that's a, a key element of everything that we should be striving to do with our clients. I think one, one of the things for customers, particularly customers of CDA dealers, is they have more than one home. They don't always understand or don't always remember how House B operates versus House A. If we can make things as consistent as possible, ensure that they always work as they expect when they get there, we're trying to do that more and more with customers. Every light switch looks and works in exactly the same way. For example, they have the same key as they go from home to home. They use the same app. That makes a big difference. And so it's about things working as they expect. And that, that means a combination of performance and usability. Well, I take Steve's point on that. Exactly one of the reasons we've won jobs with our clients abroad is that we try and consistently make their, 
their lives work the same way. You know, there's no point having uh, one type of system in one house and something completely different in another house. It drives them mad. So trying to trying to standardise that is really, really important. Um, the biggest challenge we have with looking after clients who've got more than one home is the fact that we live in a world where everything is app-driven, software is updating the whole time. And whilst we can do certain things remotely, um, I would say on our bigger projects, we would usually do, certainly houses abroad, a visit minimum once a year, usually before the season, the season being the holiday season or the ski season, just to go and check everything works. Um, we can do certain of that remotely, but it's, you know, if you don't use a house for six months and you rock up there and expect your Sonos app to suddenly work and uh, every single app on your iPad has changed, as as is a whole whole bunch of other stuff, um, it's worth just going and checking every, every every button does what it should do. And I'm one, for, I'm one with Steve with consistency, you know, the way we program, uh, the way the lights work. Um, you know, if you do that really well, it's nice to replicate that in, 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 in other homes. You know, I don't want to walk into a different house and find that the keypad's programmed completely different to my London place, to my Swiss place, to my... You want it to be seamless. Just, yeah. And just, 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 to, just to add a couple of points, I think, you know, we, we find aftercare a, a profitable part of our business, and that's not a problem for our clients. Sometimes we'll get challenged on the price of a television because they've seen it cheaper in a department store or, or something like that. Nobody minds paying for good service particularly when you deliver when it counts. I mean, hi- historically, this industry has talked a lot about future-proofing. Do you think that's mm. misguided? In no, when, I think it's part of what people service? expect. People, people expect to talk to us about anything to do with electrons. They think that we are at least one step ahead and uh, they're hoping that we're two steps ahead so they can be one step ahead of their friends. And we should be providing... A little bit of uh, wanker filter, you know, trying to uh, distill the technology that's appropriate and reliable and then helping them use that consistently and effectively in their lives. So, you know, we need to make sure that things are future ready, at least, David, don't you? Yeah, future ready sounds... Uh, that future proofing is always has always bitten you, you know. HDMI cables, 1.0. Apps are part of that. We live in an app-driven world now. You know, so our customers are quite used to dealing with that stuff. Also, as their demographic changes, you know, our clients that were 50 or 60 years old 10 years ago are now getting a little bit more elderly. The younger people coming in understand this stuff much more. I think what David is saying is that personal computer, iPhone, whatever you're looking at, has been around for a long time now. People are very comfortable with technology. They're pestered with information all the time. If we can give them, using an app or a simple dashboard for a house manager... The, the right relevant information when they need it and otherwise just give them the reassurance that everything is working and we're proactively making sure that uh, things are ticking over okay, that's probably the best approach. And some of the monitoring tools that we use, you know, we send out monthly reports to our clients. It shows them what their internet speeds have been, what their internet's been doing, um, what devices are on their network um, and a whole bunch of other stuff, which is a push or a button for us. And it's just send an email to the client and go, here's your report for this month. I hate the idea of rebooting a network router. You know, if you're rebooting a network router, it's usually because you either put a rubbish one in or it's not up for the job. Um, and usually that is the standard stock answer. You know, something's not right. So we talked about skyboxes. You know, the number of times that uh, my box is at home, I probably reboot my skybox every six weeks. I don't want to have to go down and start unplugging cables. We press a button on my, on, on my iPad and it reboots it. Uh, but it still needs somebody sitting at a desk somewhere to do that. And there's still a cost involved in doing that. So doing that for nothing makes no sense. You know, as part of your uh, original package, we include that in our first year on any project. 
you know, you're going to do these things for them anyway, so you may as well charge them for doing it and deliver what you've promised to deliver. And the people, are, they love it. When you can sort that pro problem out, Steve was saying, you know, my skybox isn't working, I've already missed the first goal. Um, OK, you could tell them to go down to the basement rack and unplug a cable at the back of their skybox, which they're never going to do in a million years. Or you can open up the, your support app on your iPad or on your phone from wherever you are and reboot that box and go, has that solved it? And they go, yes, happy days. How do you work out the charge for such a service? Reboot a Skybox, 50 quid on a Sunday, £80. No, I just... Um, <laughs> we'd, we'd look at it on a bottom-up basis. What does it actually cost us to perform the service, including proactive visits and so on? We pay our aftercare engineers additionally to be on call and we pay them a further amount if they actually have to go to site. Sometimes, you know, sometimes that's in St Albans, sometimes that's in Antigua. It depends where they're going. Um, and so there's a cost for that. And I, I, we charge between £1,000 for £5,000 a year for next working day service. And if you want 24-7 service, that might cost between ten and £20,000 a year, a little bit more uh, for security. And that's based on our cost to deliver that service. That's a combination of systems, monitoring. We've got four people plus network guys. I think we've got two and a half network guys in the office as well. So there's a team in the office and then there's uh, people in vans actually delivering service on site. So I think for integrators who might be considering getting into service, you've got to understand your own costs, your own business, how it works before you even think about it. Yeah, we often do a hybrid model with our clients. So after the first year of, of looking after the system, the new system that we put in, we'll do a service call. That's a great opportunity to check that everything's working OK. Um, talk about even upgrades at that point. You know, in the last year, this has happened, that's happened. They may want to do some things then. In practice, that's le less likely. Once we've, once we've done that, then we will, we will know, you know, we've had to visit this client twice in this year, the system's stable, they understand how to use it, it's all straightforward. Do you know what, we should plan to do two half-day visits, it's going to cost you a £1,000 for this, and pay-as-you-go as an option for additional things. Other solutions, we might go, do you know what, we're going to come and plan to do two service calls during the, during the year, and we've also included five half-hour visits, half-day visits, whatever they may be, depending, of course, where the client's located as well. That's a, a major issue in terms of... Um, understanding what the costs are of getting to those jobs. So, you know, expenses are not included or the client will pay for those. If he wants to fly you on his private jet, fine. He wants you to take EasyJet, also fine. But know what those, what those parameters are. I think people's expectations, also when you're dealing with lots of homes, you know, you may need to bundle a package together that covers all of their properties. There's one thing. Uh, as David does, includes some proactive visits, a certain number of proactive visits, as well as the responsive service. And also an overarching service plan for some clients who, with the best will in the world, can only be in one place at once, um, depending on how often they argue with their spouse, maybe two places uh, <laughs> at once, uh, sh you shouldn't be charging them per home. Of course. Upfront transparency. Great advice. Thank you to our guests, David and Steve. You're very welcome. Plenty of useful advice, though I feel we could have talked for much, much longer. And thank you, David, for hosting us today in your Islington showroom. Next month, we'll be talking about lighting and lighting control. What do you sell and how should you promote it to your customers? What are the latest trends and how can you make lighting a successful part of your business? Remember, we're downloadable absolutely free from Apple Podcasts, Spotify and audio on-demand platforms everywhere. You can also find us on Twitter at The Int Home Pod 
and on Facebook and Instagram at Integrated HomePod. Please make sure you follow us to access industry-relevant news from the world beyond home integration. You can also download useful resources and find links to topics discussed in today's show. The Integrated Home is brought to you with the support of Meridian Audio, the home of high-res audio, and is a Wildwood and Alfie Media production. The Integrated Home supports Together for Cinema. Together for Cinema is an AV industry movement that designs and installs cinema rooms in children's hospices across the UK. So far, thanks to the huge generosity of manufacturers, distributors and integrators freely giving of their time, products and expertise, we've created 21 dedicated cinemas. In these special places, children, their families, staff and volunteers are now enjoying fantastic movie experiences together. We want to build more rooms in more hospices for more children. To do that, we need your help. Visit togetherforcinema.co.uk and find out how you can be involved to help make short lives that little bit better.